Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I am here today to go in deep with Max Yoder. Max was the founder and CEO of Lessonly, uh, which was a, a SaaS company uh, that I will let him talk about a little bit more in a couple of minutes. Uh, Max, it's great to have you here. Matt, we're doing it again. Good to hear your voice. So um, why don't we start, Max, with a little bit of, of your journey? Um, you know, I know you were a, a relatively young founder, first-time founder, which, of course, is, is uh, super commonplace now. Uh, but we'd love to hear about the, the experiences you had that led to starting Lessonly, um, including what gave you the idea for Lessonly. And then you can talk for a second about what Lessonly was, too. Yeah, I interned with a gentleman named Christian Anderson when I was in college, and he had a company called Studio Science that really helped people get businesses off the ground. So I saw a ton of people coming into his office and pitching ideas, and he would help shape them. And I was like, hey, this is not the, ma the magic that I thought it was uh, in a really good way, right? Like, hey, this is just people working a process. Yeah. And uh, so, so when I graduated, I worked for another person named Chris Baggett, who is one of the co-founders at Exact Target. Um, and two just great people to work with, you know, right before I got out of college and then right when I am out of college. Uh, By the way, because, two, two great people to have in your, in your early career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and then me me mentors, mentors, my whole existence, you know, like yeah. after that. So just what a gift. Um, Chris encourages me to start a business and I start one maybe a year and a half out of college. So my first company was not less than Lee. It was a, a software called Quipple and it was polling software. And that polling software uh, didn't really serve any market because I built it thinking I knew exactly what it should do. And I launched it. And then it turns out that what I thought it should do was not really what people wanted it to do. So I just, you know, market mismatch. I just had a lot of hubris. Uh, I believed that I knew what the, the software needed and and it turns out I was wrong and so I ran that 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 uh, company for about a year and nine months I tried to sell quipple to uh, individuals to companies to use it to kind of gain insight on the internet uh, but again it wasn't what people needed um, and so that was a tough uh, tough road because I got like some publications I was fortunate enough to get some publications to write about quipple my, my people in my hometown knew about it you know my friends knew about it and then it doesn't work out you know I see somebody in the in the grocery store and they're like how's that thing going and I'm like not great. Not great. Uh, yeah, that's, not great. That's, that's tough. So I'm laying in bed, uh, shutting this thing down, laying in bed, crying. Uh, my mom tells me she still loves me. My dad tells me he still loves me. And then Christian, uh, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, tells me he still loves me. And he's like, you should do it again. And I'm like, really? And he's like, oh, yeah, you just learned a lot. Why don't, why don't you go double down? And, I'll, and he's like, and I'll do it with you. So Christian helped me with Quipple. Christian helps me with Lesson Lee. I didn't realize that. That's, that's, that's an interesting part of it. So I don't know if you know, but um, Studio Science was our agency at Return Path. There we go. I did uh, know that because I remember yeah. seeing the logo. Yeah, I yeah. Was, it was after I was there, but I'd come in and visit. And I remember, yeah, you all are a client. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then Christian, obviously now at High Alpha is one of our uh, investors and he's done some, uh, you know, some sort of informal consulting work with us on, sure. on brand and development. So like, I, I, I get it. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's a force, and he just he loved on me, and he and he he, he loved on me so much. That he ended up marrying my wife, and I was there fishing at our wedding. So just no a you know the mentor of all mentors for me, and he's like, hey, you should do it again. And I'm like, this guy doesn't have to tell me that. Like my mom, you know, I'm fortunate enough she loves me. I'm fortunate enough my dad loves me, and that is just a solid foundation. But Christian doesn't have to stick around. 
So when he did, I was like, I was pretty motivated and encouraged. So Christian um, and Mike Fitzgerald and Eric Tobias, three guys who went on to, to co-found High Alpha, they all helped me start Lessonly. Uh, so it's 2012 and this is, uh, Eric's like, Hey, I think we've, I've got an idea around training. And Mike's like, I think I have an idea around training. And I'm like, I'm open to anything. Cause I've got time. You've got experience. I've got time. You know, these guys are, uh, maybe 15 years older than me, 10 years older than me. They are uh, gainfully employed and I am not. And I'm like, I will go out and kind of vet any business idea that sounds interesting. So we look in the training space and we look B to C we look B2B and we find out the business to business is the way to go. Um, actually had this really wonderful thing happen to me. I'm vetting the business to consumer route for training software. And Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures um, shares on uh, uh, shares on a, in a blog post, the Google Drive folder that shows all of their research on that specific sector. So I get all of Union Square Ventures research on this specific sector that I am trying to do my own research on. And it just fast forwards the process for me. And it's very clear to me reading this research that it's not the direction for me. The business to consumer route is gonna take way too much money. So I go B2B um, and the big idea was we're talking to all these companies about training software and very few of them are over the moon or even slightly satisfied with what they have. They think it's pretty expensive. They think it's hard to use. They don't really know what it's doing. And so we're like, hey, this is a kind of disaffected market, but it's a market. It's already an established market. People are already spending money here. They already see the problems here, but they're not satisfied with their, their solutions. What if we were a satisfying solution? And because we don't have the dogma of the space, and when I say dogma, it's built around learning and development. And there are some really traditional views of what should be done in training software and what should not be done. We came in with very little of that, which was both you know, a hindrance and an accelerator. Um, and we just started building the software, the training software we would want to use instead of maybe the one that we thought we were supposed to supposed to make. And one customer at a time, you know, until we had about, I think, 1100 when when Seismic, which was the, the, the best and biggest partner that we had, um, go to market partner that we had acquired us in 2021. Just this really slow, never felt like we were like, what's the word for it? Never felt like we were having any nonlinear growth. It was just this linear growth that stacked on top of one another, you know, for about nine years. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's the the way that most successful B2B companies, B2B SaaS companies in particular, grow. Like, okay. it's, hard, it's hard to be a hockey stick when you're in the, in the SaaS business. I'm I not sure I would have been able to do it, Matt, if it would have yeah. been a hockey stick. I think I would have lost my mind, you know? I, you know, look, I think even Salesforce.com and, you know, its first few years, you know, it was one brick at a time, one customer mm -hmm. at a time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we did, we did that in training and it was, uh, it was quite the ride. Yeah, and at the end, uh, you were how big? Uh, in, in 300 employees, uh, about 30 million in revenue, about 1,100 customers. That's amazing. Um, I'd love to, to dig in a little bit on uh, sort of you as a leader. And um, so you were not a first-time founder, uh, which I had forgotten about, but, uh, oh, good. but Quibble didn't last very, very long. No, no. It, it was really my, I, yeah, I didn't have any teammates on Quibble. So this right. was my first time actually growing a team with right. recently. Um and uh, so, so second time ish founder, uh, relatively early career, right? It's not like you had, yeah. you had seen three journeys at, at other places. I would love to hear a little bit about sort of how you thought about growing your own career and scaling yourself um, as a leader while you scaled the company. So a lot of founders don't make it to the finish line. A lot of founders mm -hmm. get it started, you know, they get it going, they find out that they're kind of flamed out or they're not up for the task of managing a business um, as much as starting a business, mm -hmm. um, but you were there all the way to the end. So we'd love to hear a little bit about sort of how you thought about 
growing your career, scaling yourself, what things worked, what things didn't work. Sure, sure. It, career is such an interesting thing for me because because of my route. I was 23 when I started Lessonly. And so I was always, I was like the CEO until, you know, I was like 32 or 33. So career kind of trajectory and things was not something that was really on my mind, which kind of is an alienating thing because it's such a common thing to be thinking about, right? Which is career. I had to grow myself in my job, but I wasn't really thinking about like, what is my career trajectory? Um, which, because it was, I was always going to be the CEO if this thing was working out. I always knew I, I wasn't going to be the guy who could take it the distance to distance, like go on IPO. You know, if I, if Seismic wasn't going to come, come, come along and, and partner up with us in, in a big way like they did in 2021 and buy the business, um, I don't think I was going to be able to go that much longer, Matt. Like it, I was getting to my, to my headroom uh, of just like 300 people is a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot. And I'm overwhelmed at a regular basis and I don't want to be anymore. Um, we, can, but, we can debate that some other time of whether whether you could have gotten to 600 or 900 or 12, because I think you could have. I appreciate um, that. But uh, uh, but you have to do things differently. Sure. Uh, and so that's sort of the question of like from zero to 300, you have to do things differently a few, yeah. a few different times along the way. What was that like? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, th thanks for that. So that, that, that rephrase, I like uh, doing things different along the way. Well, in the in the early days, kind of being a player coach was really fun for me. And then I was the first person in the company who got to just be a coach, you know, who got to kind of, I'm only coaching. And that was probably, it sticks out in my head as one of the most difficult shifts for me going from having this to-do list where I, I get this energy from checking things off and I got the wind at my back as I check things off. N now the things I check off to-do list might've been, you know, started in conversations three or four months ago, and I'm not really checking them off. I'm helping, you know, guide, but I'm not really doing the activity. And that kind of left this dopamine uh, deficiency for me. I was like, where do I, where do I get it? You know, where do, where, where, where do I get that kind of that wind at my back? So I had to figure out a way to manufacture a bit of that as I did more strategic stuff, as I was more doing guidance. And the way I manufactured it was I started writing a note to the team each week. And it was a note that was very special to me uh, about things that I cared about that I thought we should be thinking about. Largely, it was a, a, a vulnerable note about something that I had learned the hard way that I maybe thought my teammates might benefit from. Um, and that was my dopamine hit each week of I got that note done and it was so fulfilling and so life-giving that it kind of, uh, it allowed me to be present for all the stuff that didn't feel like a, a, a hit of dopamine because there was no real checkbox, just conversation after conversation after conversation. What I realized as we grew the business though was I really needed to level up around my, uh, what I'll call emotional liberation. So there's this guy named Marshall Rosenberg. He passed away in 2015, but he was a psychiatrist and a guy who I just absolutely love and would love to sit down with for breakfast, but you know, unfortunately cannot. Uh, he talks about emotional slavery, which was something that I really struggle with, which is this idea of um, if somebody brings me a feeling or a judgment, I would carry it. And uh, I would think that it was true and that it was my responsibility. So, you know, somebody comes in and says, this place sucks and I, that would hurt me. Or, you know, this, this place is not run well, that would hurt me. Or um, let's see, uh, they would come to me with a feeling, you know, I'm really sad and I don't know what to do. I would carry all of that. And I didn't have distance, you know, I didn't have this, this healthy detachment uh, from, so, from it. It's so hard not to take it personally. Oh my gosh. It's so that, hard. No, and yet there are times no. where actually taking it personally is helpful, mm -hmm. but you gotta be able to, you gotta be able to figure out when it's helpful and when it's harmful. Amen. Because I can't just I can't just straight up detach, right? I can't like detach from feedback. I can't detach from the emotions of my teammates because part of that 
puts fuel, it's fuel for me, right? Part of that is why I'm there. I want to help other people, but I also can't carry it. And we got it to about 50 people and it was just too many feelings, too many judgments. And I was like, what do I do? So I went to the opposite end of the spectrum and tried to detach completely uh, and say like, I don't care about anybody's feelings or judgments, which did not work very long. I was like, we're going to hire an HR leader. They'll take care of it. But that was not fun for me at all because I like to be near people. You know, that's a part of why I wanted to do this. So I had to find this middle ground, which Marshall Rosenberg calls emotional liberation, which is where we can be present with people's pain. We can be present with their frustrations. We can be present with whatever they're bringing us and um, not necessarily have to carry it. We can learn from it, hear it, but not bring it on as our own burden. And that was probably the most uh, powerful accelerator for me learning how to do that because I could grow the business past 50 people at that point you know otherwise I was going to have to hide and I think this happens to a lot of my suspicion is this happens to a lot of CEOs and they don't get as lucky as I did they don't have the support that I did and they go and they kind of hide in the corner office and they kind of have other people maybe do their do their um, bidding with uh, all the emotions and all the feelings and they, they kind of think the distance makes the detachment makes them maybe uh wiser or something, but it, it detaches them from the emotional core of the business. And I don't right. know how to run a business and be detached from the emotional core of it. You know, like, uh, I think you're going to get a Frankenstein or something kind of ugly doing that. So I have I, a feeling I, I other, go right. ahead, go ahead. No, no, I, I think that's right. You know, what's interesting is um, uh, one of the um, talks that I do regularly is to either new independent board members or aspiring independent board members. Okay. And one of the things that I tell them about how to be a great board member is that they have to recognize that um, that um, the problems aren't theirs to own. Mm. The problems aren't theirs to solve because they're on the board. So th their job is to advise, to consult, you know, to suggest, but they don't have to internalize everything. Okay. And what you're describing is like the next level down from that. So when you're the CEO, actually the problems of the business are yours. Yes. Um, but the problems of the people right. are not yours. Right, right, right. And that that is a very... It was very difficult for me to learn. I was not raised that way. I, I was I was raised in an environment where somebody's in pain, help them, even if they're not asking for it. You know, uh, and I couldn't I couldn't handle it anymore. So when learning about emotional liberation and then learning to practice it, I can be present for people now. You know, and I, and I can be present for people uh, in a, in a different way. And I was actually better at at being helpful because I was just my whole, whole job was just to remain calm you know, be a calming force in front of them. Sometimes I didn't need to do anything other than that, right? Yeah. Which just be like, I hear you. Um, and, you know, learning that people are always bringing me their history, you know, like something is frustrating, a decision that we made, they think it's frustrating just because they think it's frustrating, but it's actually frustrating because it reminds them of their last job or reminds them of something their mom would do. And they might not know that, right? And so they're just bringing me the full force of it. So just detaching a bit from that, being compassionate, being loving to them, but not caring, whew. What a gift. And yeah, it's, it was an accelerator for me in my personal and professional life. And did you get that from Marshall Rosenberg or from a coach or a mentor? Well, or I got it from a lot of people. Lot of people. Yeah. The idea from, from Marshall Rosenberg, like the, oh, that's what I need. There it is. You know, there's the, there's the divine middle that I've been looking for. And then coaches and therapists. I mean, anybody who I could find, I would want to talk to him about this and get guidance from people. Um let's talk more practically. How did you learn how to be a CEO? How did you learn how to be a CEO of a bigger company and a bigger company and a bigger company? Because mm -hmm. there are things um, that are more on the emotional intelligence side, like what we just mm -hmm. talked about, but you actually have to go out there every day and do the job. And mm -hmm. the job of running a 300 person company is really different than the job of running a three person company. 
Yeah. Yeah. My, my, uh, wisdom for anybody would be, uh, partner uh, with your best friend, Connor Burt and have him be the operational genius and strategic genius of the business. Uh, and it'll be easier if you can find somebody like that. I had a partner named Connor, uh, and we grew that business. We grew, he was my roommate when I started Lessonly and I uh, ended up joining forces with me and taking it the distance and his operational and strategic savvy, uh, saved me, I think from, uh, uh, having to be the whole thing. Like the executive team in general was that it was this ensemble around me that allowed me just to be strong in my strengths and, and not necessarily have to fix every, every weakness that I have. Um, but I was able to, you know, very early on in the business, have this executive team that I could trust, uh, and, you know, verify every now and then, but generally just be like, Hey, I trust you to do this job. You can come to me whenever you have a question, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hover over you. I'm just going to tell you what to me is culturally really important. And it is this style of treating people. If you can treat people in this style, uh, anything else, I really don't care how you get it done. You know, like so long as you're treating people with dignity and respect in these certain ways. So I'm not trying to dodge your question, Matt. I just don't have specifics of, of how I grew with it other than I hired people around me uh, who were just really, really, really good at doing the stuff that I did not know how to do. But that's, the, but I, that's I, the answer, right? Yeah, that's the answer, you know, yeah. You're, you're yeah. willing to hire, I am guessing, um, and I know a couple of the people, but I'm guessing that uh, you were hiring people more experienced than you were. Yeah, more experienced and more passionate about those areas, right? I, I'm, I, the, our finance leader, Brian Motmany, was, he was our, our CFO, that man knows things and cares about things that I just am so glad he cares about because I couldn't begin to get excited about the same things Brian cares about Connor too, but thank God they do uh, because we just balance one another out and we just had this really healthy dynamic of loving one another and having so much respect for one another's talents that it ended up just being very, uh, just a really healthy dynamic. Hey, you know, revenue recognition policies can be very exciting. <laughs> well, I'm glad somebody's doing them, Matt. But like what I, what I learned is if I'm not clearly communicating uh, these, the, the cultural norms again and again and again all the time, and then, of course, embodying them, um, and then apologizing when I don't embody them, which I think is probably the most important part, um, I'm not doing my job, and I just made that my sole focus. Okay, if this is a healthy organization, we have, probably can hit our numbers. How do we make it a healthy organization? Well, there's certain relationship dynamics that, that, that really help that. We have to have difficult conversations. We have to highlight what's working. We have to share before we're ready. We have to ask clarifying questions. Okay, how do I make those basically the only things I'm talking about, which is the fundamental stuff that if we do it, we're accelerated, and if we don't do it, we're going to slow down. Um, and then everybody else could take care of what is our, what is our quarter goal going to be next year? You know, or, or what are our quarter goals going to be next year? I never, never made a decision on that. Connor would come to me and say, here's what I think we should do next year. Brian would say the same. And I'd be like, okay, but that like, I never was a CEO who could kind of do it all. And uh, I don't know if there is one of those, but I definitely wasn't. So let me ask you a tough question and then sure. we'll shift, shift gears to a couple other things. So you said a few minutes ago that you were about tapped out. Like you couldn't mm -hmm. imagine, you know, growing to the next level and the next level. And I'm trying to figure out why, because everything I've heard so far says to me that you had the tools, both the emotional tools, as well as kind of the practical business building tools to do just that, right? Mm -hmm. That if, when you were at 300 people and thinking about how to get to 600, if you didn't have the right leaders in place, you'd get the right leaders in place. You'd have the yeah. difficult conversations. You'd figure out what you were equipped to do and what you weren't equipped to do. Like, that's all the stuff that usually prevents someone from getting to, you know, from sort of medium size to large. Yeah. Um, why did you feel like you were kind of tapped out? My body told me it like about seven, about seven years in my body, uh, 
was not showing the interest. And when I say my body, I maybe should say like my mind, which is not just my brain, right? It is my body. It's my space. It's my mind is bigger than my brain. And my mind was finding itself distracted by business after about seven years. I, we did, did nine years with Lessonly. Um, seven years in, I found myself gravitating toward different things. I found my interests uh, gravitating toward stuff that was not anything close to the business. And I would just kind of realize, oh, I'm not naturally going back to the business. It's not something that I'm enjoying thinking about. I'm losing, I'm losing my love for it. And I think, I think what it was was that, that, that cycle of seven years, 28 quarters, um, being like, hey, I think I, I understand this to my satisfaction, not, 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 not perfectly and not to the highest level and not in all the ways, but I understand it to my satisfaction. And there are other things in the world that I don't understand to my satisfaction, and that's where my body's going. Uh, and so just, I think my, I it just said, Hey, we've, we feel like we've done it. We feel like we've done this. Yeah. And, and those quarters are so, they beat you down. They beat me down. You know, every quarter it's like, Hey, great job. Do it again. Every, do, it do, again, again. do it again. Do it again. Everything goes back to zero forever, forever. Yeah. There's never like, Oh, but in four quarters more then you can stop for a couple quarters. It's like, no forever. And I just, uh, I think I got, uh, I got overwhelmed by that. And my body decided it wanted to do other stuff. And I wanted to respect that. That's uh, an incredible amount of self-awareness. I give you a lot of credit for that. Well, I appreciate that, man. It was, I, I, I love this guy named Gabor Mate, G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E. He wrote, wrote this book called When the Body Says No, which had me aware of the signals. Hmm. Um, like bodies are constantly, we're constantly ignoring our, our, our minds and maybe our bodies and what they're saying because we can just kind of think that it's in our frontal cortex and whatever our frontal cortex says we need to do is what we really need to do. But our body might have different needs than our, you know, our ego does. And he just helped me pay attention to cues. What might it feel like if the body is saying no? And my body was saying a lot of no's once I, you know, learned to listen to it. It's a good skill to have. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I'm very grateful. So let me shift gears a little bit. You're a really creative person. Um, and, uh, And I know one of the things that's a creative outlet for you is music. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think, you know, I don't know each other super well, but uh, enough right. for me to know that you're one of the more um, kind of artistically creative CEOs um, mm. that I've met in my career. So what I'm wondering is, is sort of how you found enough outlets for that creativity in building Lessonly. And let's say post the first two years, like, Okay. I get the first two years is nothing but creativity. When you're starting a business, you're yeah. trying to find product market fit. You're a player coach. So you're working on designing this and designing. That. Like, I get that. Yeah. But after that, like once you had a thing and you're, you know, SaaS businesses are kind of in rinse and repeat mode at some point. Um, uh, how did you find outlets for creativity? Yeah, I had, I was drawn to uh, pianos and guitars from an early age, but never in, and was never pushed to, uh, to, to learn them in any traditional way, which I think is like a, a great gift. My, my, my brother and my sister, uh, older brother, younger sister, both took piano lessons. I did not. I'm the only one who plays piano. Um, and, uh, and I think it's just because I was able to naturally be drawn to it. Um, and between writing songs and writing words, those are the two most abundantly kind of creative sources for me. If I'm writing something on the page or if I'm recording something, I am just in a different place. And so there was a point, like you said, where the business was too much creativity. I didn't have a lot of creativity to give. Um, and I just kind of stepped away from the instruments. But slowly over time, five, six years in, the business is more stable. Um, and I'm able to, to spend more time making music. And what I find is it just, 
if 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 my well-being is like a is like a, a circle, uh, you know, business can only support my well-being in a certain slice. It's not the whole pie, right? It's just a certain slice. And there's other outlets that I need, like you know, physical outlets, um, and and emotional and spiritual outlets. And the emotional and spiritual outlets came often from these creative things that I'd make something that was a reflection of myself or my experience or just a reflection of the fact that I'm a human. And I would tend to do that with you know friends. I play music with other CEOs. Uh, who are uh, musically inclined. And it is, I wish meetings were more like jamming uh, because I would, I would do meetings all the dang time. Uh, but like what, what I just found was it was, filling, it was filling my body in a certain way. And it was something that I would learn something in music that I could then apply to work. Like, I, you know, something about harmony, right? You, you need tension in order, in the music, you need tension in, in order to appreciate the resolution. If I just have a music, music songs that have no tension, they are not very interesting. Um, and that's, there's something I can make of that in the working world, right? The tension and release, tension and release is this constant cadence I'm going to be going through at work. It's going to be tension. We're going to have these moments of it's all working. Then it's going to be tension again. And that is music. Um, so I guess what I found was I like to play music and I like to write. And so I made space for those things in my workday. And I did not have any, I didn't really say this yet, but I would make time at 11 a.m. I'd make time at 10 a.m. to pick up the guitar or to write. And I would consider it my duty to the rest of the business for me to spend that time because I knew I'd show up differently if I didn't in a way that was not necessarily productive. So it's, it's such an interesting uh, answer to that question. Did, did you ever find yourself and the answer may be no, because you figured out that you needed to blend that work into your day-to-day. -day. Yeah. Um, but did you ever find yourself uh, either creating kind of chaos internally because you wanted to bring creativity to the business that didn't require creativity at that level anymore? Mm. Or did you find yourself trying to apply creativity to things that were sort of inherently less creative in the business? Or did you yeah. just say like, hey, I got to scratch that edge that comes with the guitar and it's happening at 10 in the morning. Yeah, I'd say that second, I, I resonated with both of those th things. Like I sometimes do try to create stress in my life uh, and I, more when I was younger, just to feel alive. Um, but I think more so I was looking for these, hey, there is art in the business world. There's a ton of art in the business world. The way that we engage is where I found the most art and creativity. How do I, like, I, I, I appreciate psychology. I appreciate uh, spirituality. And I'm like, these things are in the business world, whether we uh, um, pay attention to them or not. And it would became very creatively rewarding for me to read books about uh, things that I could then apply to work or to do my own writing about, hey, what is the human dynamic? What are, when relationships are working, what is happening? Um, what is well-being? And that was very intellectually stimulating for me and creatively stimulating for me. I would find things in the business that aligned to things I already wanted to do. And I'd figure out how can I make this useful to the business? Um, and uh, I think that pays off, you know, like, these things are, I'm, I'm motivated, intrinsically motivated to go do them. How do I make them pay off for the business? Generally, there's a way because the business is, is people and I'm interested in people. Um, that's so interesting. And, and I'm guessing is part of the answer to my last question. So okay. yeah, sorry to, if I'm not answering your question. No, I'm not no, trying, no, no, no. I'm you, not trying to avoid you, them. Not only you're answering questions and you're leading me to the next one. So, okay. um, so one of the things I love about your story is that you started a nonprofit um, you know, sort of in the context of Lessonly. Yeah. And other, other companies have done that. We did that at Return Path with Path Forward. I know uh, the exact target team and Scott Dorsey started Next Tech. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, Brighter Indie. Yeah. Um, where did it come, where was, where did it come from? Um, 
what impact has it had and how did it kind of relate to or motivate the team at Lessonly? Yeah. When we started Brighter Indie, uh, I think it was 2016 or 17. And the idea was net new revenues. Every We're generating new revenue every quarter. What if what if we take a percent of net new revenues and and give it to local nonprofits? We would we would people would come to us and say, hey, can you help out, you know, a local nonprofit? Uh, we would want to help everybody, but des by definition could not. Uh, so we created a process that said, um, hey, if you're a local Indianapolis nonprofit, you can apply to Brighter Indie. We're going to go through like a, a vetting process. We're going to pick four nonprofits each year and uh, we're going to give them 20 grand for the year. And as the company got bigger, it was 30 grand, 40 grand. And that's a big deal to a nonprofit to be like, oh my gosh, we just got $40,000 from, from, from Lessonly. But it was tied to our growth. So as we grew more, as we landed our first million dollar deal, that was money in the pockets to our local community. And what we focused on were youth, uh, were, were local nonprofits that were giving youth experiences. We, were, we wanted to make sure that the youth of Indianapolis were getting rich, rewarding experiences. Maybe they were in robotics. Maybe they were in, uh, uh, in drama. Maybe it was in music. Uh, maybe it was just um, uh, in school. We, we worked with a, a group called Elevate Indy uh, almost every year of, of Brighter Indianapolis that was all about bringing new experiences to kids in school and then bringing mentorship and support to kids in school that they don't necessarily get from the common school, school curriculum. So it was rewarding because we could volunteer with these groups, we could give them money, and we knew that we were putting it right back in our local community. Because at the time, you know, 90% of Lessonly was in Indianapolis. That started to change a lot with COVID, where we started to hire more remotely. And I'm not really sure what we would have done had we stayed independent long term. Right. Because that Indianapolis tie was, you know, pretty potent, but I'm sure it was going to be less potent over time. Anyhow, it was just, it was a motivating force that, hey, this isn't just about the bottom line of the business. It's also about the bottom line of our, of our city. I love that. And, you know, it, it probably gives, you know, gives people on the team one extra thing to be yes. proud of, one extra thing to connect with. Yes. And we could invite those groups in and they could share with us, you know, how, what are they doing with the money? And that was always just like, oh, you know, like what a motivating force to have somebody come in and be like, you gave us this money. Here's what we did with it in your community. And we were just like, it, it was, uh, it made our hearts swell. And, you know, now that we have those relationships, many, many teammates at Leslie, myself included, now have our personal relationships with some brighter indie nonprofits that, you know, we have our, that we wouldn't have found out about without brighter indie. We're like, I didn't even know that indie existed. And now it's an organization I'm very engaged with. And that's the case with many of my teammates too, because we just got more awareness of what our local community needed. Amazing part of the story. Uh, Thanks for asking. Well, Max, thank you for being here. This is a great conversation. I will say I come away from this inspired um, by a lot of what you said. And, uh, and I know a lot of the founders who are listening well as well. So thank you for joining me today. Matt, thank you. You were, you were very gracious to me many times in the lesson experience and not because you needed to be, um, but just because you were. Uh, you made time for me. You mentored me. You gave me guidance. Uh, and yeah, you always treated me with dignity and respect. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you. And thanks for having me on today. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, my friend.